He stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly, and it seemed to this saint that the sound of the ticking was the ceaseless repetition of the words, ever, never, ever, never, ever to be in hell, never to be in heaven, ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beautiful vision, ever to be eaten with flames gnawed by vermin, goaded with burdening spikes, never to be free from those pains, ever to have the conscience upbraided, the memory and rage, the mind filled with darkness and despair, and never to escape ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive even for an instant God's pardon, ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never, oh, what dreadful punishment, an eternity of endless agony, of endless bodily and spiritual torment, without one ray of hope, without one moment of cessation of agony, limitless in intensity of torment, infinitely varied of torture that sustains eternally that which it eternally devours, of anguish that everlasting preys upon the spirit while it racks the flesh. An eternity every instant of which is itself an eternity of woe. Such is the terrible punishment decreed for those who die in mortal sin by an almighty and just God. That is written, was written by James Joyce, and I believe, for at least for me and my own personal opinion, the most descriptive and horrifying account of hell that I have read. Ever, never, ever, never. We were probably told somewhere in preacher school that you should ever see God's grace and never seek in hell. Today we will see about both. Because we will ever rejoice in God's wondrous and full, pardoning grace. And we will never cease to proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. How often do we speak about the horrors of hell while we teach through the Bible? So as often as it shows up, as often as we teach about it. It is a horrible thing to teach. I take absolutely no pleasure whatsoever. But we come to Revelation chapter 14, and we look at what John has to say in this amazing chapter today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 and John John is a no-nonsense apostle we like John because he doesn't mess around John presents to us very especially in John's epistles but throughout all of John's writings he presents to us a very clear dualism. There is light and there is darkness. There is black and there is white. There is truth and there is error. There is Christ and there is antichrist. There is heaven and there is hell. And there is no in between. John does not mess around. You don't get this idea of a backslidden Christian from John's writings. You don't get this idea of nominal Christianity from John's writing. You don't get this idea of, well, I can be, I can accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You don't get that from John. I don't really think you get it from any of the other writings. But you certainly don't get it from John. John is very black and white. There is salvation and there is damnation. And in 
Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 13, we are going to see abundant grace, and we are going to see devastating judgment. This fits John perfectly. There is neither or. You either follow the beast or you follow the lamb. There is no kind of beastly lamb that fills both worlds. You follow the lamb, you follow the beast. You bear the destiny of the land and the destiny of the peace. There is no in between. And so we come to Revelation chapter 14. Let me give you a little bit of context. I mean, kind of provide some idea of where we're going. Um, the context of uh, of Revelation 14, we saw back in chapter 12 that the dragon has gone, the dragon who is a, a vision that John is seeing, a vision of this dragon who is that serpent of old Satan and he has failed in his attempt to destroy the Messiah and so he goes to make war uh, against those who follow Messiah. He goes to make war against the followers of Christ. Then we saw in chapter 13 the means by which he goes about making that war and the dragon uses Two agents to wage his deadly war against the people who follow Christ. And the first beast we saw is the beast that we probably generally label um, persecution. And the second beast is deception, and especially religious deception. And we see this throughout the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 2 and 3 of the seven churches. We see the two things that they face were... And these are the two means or agents that the dragon uses to wage war against the saints. We've been seeing up to this point, we've been seeing counterfeits. We'll continue to see counterfeits today. So um, I bring that up. We've seen a counterfeit Christ, uh, a beast whose head was slain, uh, or a mortal wound was healed. It looked as though he was dead, but now he's alive. A uh, counterfeit Christ. We've seen a dragon and, and two beasts um, which speak to us uh, as a counterfeit trinity. We see a counterfeit Holy Spirit, a counterfeit Christ, and today we're going to see a counterfeit Mark. Actually, last week we saw a counterfeit mark. Today we will see the truthful mark. So that's kind of where we've been. Let me give you an idea of where we are going and just give you a preview. After all of this, this idea that the dragon goes and makes war against people who follow after the Lamb or after Christ, the churches to whom John is writing might wonder what is the hope of those of us who reject the beast? Is there anything for us? We are going to see today that the followers of the beast bear the mark of the beast and that the followers of the lamb bear the mark of the lamb. And that the followers of the beast, actually today we'll see the followers of the beast call to repent. And if they do not, they will share in the fate of the beast. While the followers of the Lamb will rejoice in his presence. The question, what is the hope of those who reject the beast? Well, you may face the wrath of the beast, but you will not face the wrath of the Lamb. And in the presence of the Lamb you will find rest. Revelation chapter 14 is needful for us. Revelation chapter 14 is needful for us because all of us need encouragement to persevere. It is easy to grow weary of being a Christian and living your life with Christ. It is easy to give in to the temptations that are so abundant about us. The chapter 14 is, is a chapter that encourages you and I to persevere and to stay strong and not to abandon the hope that Christ has given to us. 
And it is a warning to those who reject the offer of the gospel. And the warning is ever, never, ever, never. And so if you will join me as I read chapter 14, verses 1 through 13, we'll come back and begin looking at what John has to say in this both glorious and frightful passage of Scripture. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard the voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been Purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Follow, follow this Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, and night... They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for the deeds will follow them. And so we continue on in this uh, Section that really began in chapter 12 that's going to end a little later on in chapter 14. And as we uh, continue this, this visionary scene that John begins to see once again, we see that, that John looks and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. I think that there is no accident in this John seeing the Lamb standing on Mount Zion because, after all, I think it stands in contrast to the dragon who stands on the seashore. The dragon stands on the shifting sands of the sea, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, stands on the firm, unshakable mountains. Jesus' position is firm. And the dragon, the dragon's position is precarious. And we see him standing on Mount Zion. Now as we go through the Bible, we see Mount Zion and Zion standing for a number of different issues. And I will not go through all of the various details of Mount Zion and what it stands for and how it is used in Scripture. But I think one of our best places to go to understand what is being referred to here is um, is Psalm chapter 2. One of the reasons I'm going to Psalm chapter 2 is because starting in Revelation 12, John's been referring to Psalm chapter 2 a lot. We're seeing Psalm chapter 2 over and over and over again. It's beginning in chapter 12. And so we should not be surprised then or we should not depart from this reference to Psalm chapter 2. Y'all need to read Psalm chapter 2. Later, which I'm done. Listen for now. It's a great song, one of my favorites. 
But it's the psalm where the peoples of the earth shake their fists at God and say, we're not going to be constrained by God's rules. We don't need His rules. We'll do whatever we want to do. Who is God that He can constrain us? I gave a verse, and the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. And then it comes to Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. But as for me, I install my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You, the kings of the earth, make your plan, and you you think that you can overthrow the king of heaven, and God responds mockingly and in derision of them. You think your kings? I've installed my king. I've installed my king on Mount Zion, and he's the one who rules. He's the one who reigns. He is the one who is the king. The beast is not sovereign. Caesar is not Lord. It is Jesus who rules. No empire can withstand the rule of Christ. They rise and they fall. They come and they go. Daniel saw four empires come and go. We've seen empires rise and we've seen them come. Perhaps America itself having risen, may indeed stay for a fall. Comes and goes. And Jesus stands on his holy mountain and reigns. And you need to ask, where is your trust? And where is your hope? It's on the shifting sands of temporal government. It is in the wrong place. Your hope needs to be upon the rule of Christ who reigns forever and ever. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. My have installed my king. The beast is not sovereign. And in John's day, you were forced to say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians would not. This is why they would say, Jesus is that wasn't just a statement. It was direct defiance against the beast. It wasn't just a simple statement. Jesus is Lord. It was rebellion against the state. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. We also see in the book of Hebrews that Zion is the place where God protects his people. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 23 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion... And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to be sprinkled, and to the sprinkled blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews tells us that Zion is the place where God protects his people. And so John begins this vision. And again, this is a vision. We do not, I do not take this literally. As you know, I take the whole book of Revelation symbolically. I have my reasons for that. So humor me. I've explained them. I'll explain them to you personally if you would like. And I understand the book of Revelation not to be limited to the future. Though I think there are future elements in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation speaks to, from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of Christ's second coming, and that things that we read in the book of Revelation are applicable to us today. They speak to us now. They spoke to John's seven churches when they were relevant and, and immediate for them, and they spoke to the churches in the dark ages who were suffering, and the churches and to the nonconformists after the Reformation, and they speak to you and me, and if our world goes on a hundred more years or a thousand more years, they will be relevant to us. And we see now the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, the King, the ruler of all who protects his people, and with him 144,000. Now we've already looked at this 144,000 when we study chapter 7 and we identify the 144,000 as believers, as the church of the living God. And now we see that same group again. Note the ident- one of the identifying features of this particular group of people. 
they had the name of his father written on their foreheads. We saw back in chapter 7 that God marks his people. And here we see exactly how they are marked. They are marked on their forehead with the name of God. The name of the Father and of the Lamb is written on their foreheads. And you'll recall way back in Revelation chapter 3 verse 12. John's message to the church of Philadelphia, or Jesus' message to the church of Philadelphia that John communicates. And he's speaking to the church of Philadelphia, and he's also speaking, as we discussed back then, and he's speaking to a specific church, but he's also speaking to the churches throughout the ages. And this is what he says to those who will overcome. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven of my God, and my new name. He will, the one who overcomes, will bear the name of the Father and of the Lamb. This is the mark of God. There is no accident. This is not kind of serendipity that John puts the, the marked believers in this because we just saw. What did we just see? Unbelievers marked with the beast. The mark of the beast. And now John says, those who refuse to repent and follow after Christ have a mark. They are marked with the beast. It's a counterfeit mark. But the true mark is the mark of the people of God. And they have the name of the Father and of the Son. I should ask you, are you marked? books. This is much deeper. This is the name of the crucified Lamb and the Father who identify you as being separated unto God. So we see this 144,000. One of the things we note about this 144,000 which I understand to be the people of God is that they sing a song of victory. They sing a song, and we see that a voice comes from heaven. This is very interesting, the way this is phrased. I'm not going to get too far into it. But I heard a voice from heaven. So John hears a voice. It's the sound of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard is like the sound of very many harps playing, or the sound of harpists playing on their harps. That sounds a lot like the voice of Christ. As we've read earlier. But then notice this. And they sang a new song before the throne. It's not the sound of Christ. It sounds like Christ, but it's not Christ. It is the people of God singing this song. And we should not be surprised that the people of God sound much like their Savior. Remember the second beast? He looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. These are people who bear the image of the land that have the name of the land written on their forehead, and they speak like a land. They sing like a land. They sound like a lamb. Are the words that you speak and the voices that you hear, are they like the lamb? There's a voice from heaven being sung before the throne, before the living creatures, before the elders, like and sounds like harpists. And remember, you're describing. Remember, harps are joyful this year. These are joyful sounds. I think our best um, current understanding of what a harp would be would be like a banjo. Banjos are happy instruments, aren't they? There's not a whole lot of dirges for banjos. When you hear a banjo, what do you start doing? That's what starts doing, doesn't it? Next start bobbing, and you start, what do you like? Banjo music or not? You can spot a banjo music, but I challenge you not to tap your foot. You'll be tapping your foot going, I hate this, but... Because it's happy music. (laughs) These people are singing a happy song. It is a song of victory. It is, according to the book of Revelation, a new song. We should understand what a new song is. A new song 
at least as it's described in the Old Testament, a new song is a song that was sung in celebration of victory when Israel, the people of God, overcame an oppressor or overcame somebody who fought against them or enslaved them or oppressed them in some way and God had victory. They sang what a new song. And here a new song is being sung before the throne where the Lamb and the Father are seated and before the elders and before the living creatures. A new song is being sung because new victories call for new songs. This is why one reason we do not just limit our singing to the Psalter. That was a big controversy a long time ago. But there are many churches today who will sing, especially those of the more reformed persuasion, who sing only from the Psalter. From the book of Psalms, by the way. Sorry. But I side with Isaac Watts, one of the greatest hymn writers ever. He says, why are we singing songs that only talk about shadows, that point towards great things? We stand on the other side of the victory of Christ. We need to sing of the victories of the risen Christ and the victories of the Lamb of God who overcame the cross, who bore our sins, who rose on the third day and is coming again. Let us sing new songs because every new victory requires a new song. And so the 144,000 are singing great praises because new victories call for new songs. You should know it's an exclusive song that only the 144,000 can learn this song. Only the redeemed can sing of the victory of the Lamb. Only those who have experienced Christ's redemption can learn and sing this song. Only believers can sing of redemption. Only not be able to actually sing the words. And only the redeemed know the song of the Lord. Hindus do not sing the victory song of the Lamb. And do this. And do this. Only they can learn this song. It's an exclusive song. It's a song of victory. Only those who've experienced the victory of salvation in Christ can learn this song. And then we see a description of the 144,000. I'd like to point out four things about this group of people. The first thing we see is that it tells us that they are the ones who have not been defiled with women. Again, I take the book of Revelation symbolically. I do not believe these are limited to unmarried men. In other words, the 144,000, number one, is an exclusive club for males. Reminds me of the little rascal character. The human animal and haters club. <laughs> That's not this. Sorry, ladies, you're out of luck. <laughs> you bad. You know, we got pretty good. We know the song of the Lamb, you don't. <laughs> you stand before the throne of God. I don't know where you're standing. This has more to do with a reference to sexual immorality than it does with unmarried men. These are those who did not drink of the, of the wine of Babylon's immorality as we see in verse 8. We also see other scriptures that speak of the immorality of Babylon. I think I put a couple of scriptures up there. Let's see, yes. Revelation 17, 2, when the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, those who dwell 
long years were made drunk with the wine of her that is Babylon's immorality. Revelation 18.3 For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. The 144,000, the church of God, is talking about those who have not been seduced by the world's immorality. They did not drink Babylon's wine. Folks, two things run. There are a number of sub things run through the book of Revelation, and two of them are in regards to sin, two primary sins idolatry and immorality. And these are those who have not been caught up into the world's mores of sexual immorality. Not some guy who's never been married. This was just as prominent in John's day as it is in ours. The Roman world was filled with a sexual ethic that was probably at least as permissive as ours, perhaps more so. The city of Corinth was just a pornographic town. You couldn't walk down the city street without being assaulted by pornographic images. And the Christian sexual ethic was seen to be at odds with Roman culture. We should not be surprised when our sexual ethic is at odds with our current culture. Why should we be surprised that that's the way it's always been? And we do not give in to the morals and the ethics of the culture, but we live our lives in a way that is sanctified before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These are those who do not drink of Babylon's passions. Babylon being a picture of the fallen world that is a rebellion to God. Not only are there, is there a morality or a sexual morality um, purity with these people, but we also see that these are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. In other words, they do not follow the beast. They do not entertain the words of the false prophet who glorifies the beast. They do not follow the Lamb. They, or they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They keep His word. They are not persuaded by the lies of the false prophet. They refuse the lure of idolatry. So now we saw in the first one, they are not persuaded by sexual immorality and they are not persuaded by the lure of idolatry. They do not worship the beast. They do not follow the beast wherever he goes. This would be a, a challenge. After all, we saw earlier that the whole world says, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against the beast? These people spurn the beast and follow the lamb wherever he goes. You'll notice that these are those who were purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are purchased. They are the first fruits. And first fruits has a number of references or a number of various um, usages in Scripture. I think in this sense it has to do with an offering to God in the sense of being separated to Him and sanctified. Here's one thing I want to focus on, however. I want you to note how they have been purchased from among men. Notice the passive use of that word. They have been purchased. In other words, they did not purchase themselves. Listen, folks, as we go through the book of Revelation, you and I are different on the some of these events. Some of you are pure teachers. You think all this is going to happen in the future. Fair enough. We can, we can have fun with that. Some of you think that all of this was fulfilled in the past. All I need to on some of those things. Some of you take these things very, very literally. Okay. 
I'll have fun with you once in a while. But here's where we do not differ at all, nor is there room for disagreement, and that is you cannot save yourself. Regardless of how we hold the book of Revelation as to when it happens, where it happens, how symbolic, what symbolic, what it isn't, we can have fun with that. Here's where we do not compromise. You cannot save yourself. You must be purchased by God. You cannot purchase. You do not have enough resources. And even if you did have the resources, those resources came to you from God Himself. So how can you purchase from God that which He gave you? You need to be purchased by the Lamb of God. Our salvation comes from outside us. It is sometimes known as an alien righteousness. That is not alien, that is a weird movie. As an alien that is explored, it is outside of us. Our salvation does not come from within us. Our salvation comes from outside of us. It comes from Christ who now makes intercession for you in heaven, who is risen on the third day, who gave his life on Calvary. That's where our salvation comes from. It is purchased by the blood of Christ alone. This is why we need to take note that they have been purchased, passive. They are the receivers of the purchasing. They are not the originators of the purchase. And finally, we see that no lie is found in their mouth. They are blameless. That is, they tell the truth. They tell the truth. This is, I don't think, limited to telling the truth, saying business to you. They say I'll do something and actually follow through on their words. They let their yes be yes and their no be no. I think it's much more than that. In the context of Revelation, I think this has to do with they tell the truth about God. They tell the truth about Christ. They tell the truth about salvation. They tell the truth about sin. They tell the truth about heaven. They tell the truth about hell. They tell the truth about righteousness. They tell the truth about judgment. They tell the truth. The whole truth. All of the truth. Even the uncomfortable truths, which we are going to be getting to. But I will tell the truth to the best of my ability. And when it's uncomfortable, I will still tell it. And we will speak about heaven and its glories, and we will speak about hell and its horrors. And we will speak about the glorious grace that out that is beyond and greater than any sin you can commit, and we will talk about the judgments unrepentant sin. We will tell the truth to the best of our ability. No lies found in their mouth. They are blameless. And so the 144,000 sin was on victory before the Lamb, and they are held in, in total blamelessness. As Jude said. That he will make you blameless. He will make you stand complete and blameless before him. What a great word that is. He will make you stand. You're too weak. I'm too weak. He'll prop you up. He'll make you stand. He'll strengthen your knees. And you will stand. Blameless. Well, now we come to a whole new section, a vision of these three angels. The proclamation, a gracious offer from these three angels. And the first angel comes flying. He sees him in mid-heaven. And, and he proclaims an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs and the waters. This gospel is an eternal gospel. And I would like to spend a few moments considering what that means. First of all, it can be eternal gospel, so it is eternal. They're going, duh. It is unchanging and it is forever true. The gospel that was preached by Paul is the, and, and brought salvation to those whom he preached to is the same gospel that we are to preach today. It does not change because we live 2,000 years later. So many people today will say, well, we're in the water and enlightened. 
you know, world and we are, you know, post-Christian and post-whatever. And the gospel was good for an ancient culture or superstition. The gospel is eternal. And it's the same God who lived yesterday, today, and forever. And His word is valid to yesterday, today, and forever. And in a million, billion, trillion years, the gospel will still be the truth. It is a gospel that is not local. In other words, the gospel is not meant for Western culture. And you see, Eastern people and others from various cultures, they have their own various um, religious sensitivities and truths, and, and you know, their culture has their truth. The gospel is not local. It is eternal. It is for all times and for all people. There is not a gospel for Jews and a gospel for Hindus and a gospel for Buddhists and a gospel for atheists and a gospel for Muslims. There is a gospel. And it is true for Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists. The gospel to save Jew is the gospel that will save them. And the gospel that saves your Great, 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 great grandchildren is the gospel that saves from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people. And it will always be true, and it has always been true. It is eternal. And the gospel is this fear God and give him glory. God is the creator of all things, he has created you in his image. You are not an accident of cosmic mistakes. A genetic mutation. You are the designed creation of an almighty, all-wise God who you have been created by Him and for Him. Now give Him glory. Bow the knee and say, You are God and I am not. You alone are to be worshipped, not the beast, not my own abilities, not my own strength, not my own intellect. After all, my own strength and my own intellect have been given to me by you. And I will now worship you with my intellect and abilities that you have given me. Uh, you are the creator of all. The eternal gospel. John now sees an angel flying in heaven with the eternal gospel that is fit for everybody of all times. And it is bowing before God. And give him glory. Then there's a second angel that comes along. It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This is the world system, and she is portrayed in the book of Revelation as a prostitute. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I want you to understand the fall of this world system is certain, it is absolutely, completely certain. One of these days, every kingdom will fall. It is absolutely certain. America will fall. I pray not for her. I pray she repent and her fall is way, way, way down the road. But the fall of the world system is certain. And this is a call to repentance. Do you believe that the world system is falling? Do you believe it's fallen, that it is corrupt? Fallen is bad one. This is a call to repentance. Fear God and give Him glory. Why? Because the world system that you and I live in is going to collapse. And there will be a single kingdom, the kingdom of God, Christ, and it alone will stand. If this world system is falling, it is time to abandon ship and repent of your sins and become part of the kingdom of heaven. This is a call to repentance. We need to ask if we are believers, are we living in this culture as though it is eternal and that it will never end? I love this country. I pray that it goes on well. I pray that we all have peace and that we have prosperity and that God blesses us. But I fear a nation who has utterly, utterly, and completely, all Western cultures just utterly turned their backs on God. He's fit for a museum at best. 
And in the meantime, we'll murder one another and we'll destroy one another. Fallen is the world system. Will you trust to it or will you fear God and give Him glory? And then the third angel. I want you to note the progression of these three angels. The first one is a call to believe the gospel. The second one is a call to forsake the citizen uh, of the world system and instead be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the third angel is one that if you are not a citizen of heaven, this is the judgment. third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, he will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. Allegiance to the beast will spare you the wrath of the beast, but, you will, but the trade-off is horrific, because the trade-off is eternal, endless punishment. The idea of hell has stumbled many, many Christians. And has caused much heartache and difficulty. The great men of God have said here, John Stott, died a few years ago, struggled with the doctrine of hell, so I don't know if I can believe it. I don't disbelieve it. It's just too horrific. It is utterly horrific. I read two cures and preachers. One I said, one of them to preach on the day. And he said, I, I preached on hell. And the first one said, Did you leave? We do not speak of such doctrines glibly or lightly or as, they are, as if they are some sort of Yahoo. People are going to get us to do that. We mourn and we weep. We beg God to have mercy. This is the worst thing that could ever, ever happen to a person. This is worse than any terminal disease. It is worse than any deformation. It is worse than anything that could happen. It's worse than any poverty. It is worse than anything. It has stumbled many Christians and caused them to abandon Christ. They say, well, that must be an unloving God. I will tell you this. I won't get into all of the fine nuances of the doctrine of hell. But I will tell you this. That it is a loving God right now who is calling you to repent for your sins and turn away so you will not face that eternity. It is not a hateful God. If it was a hateful God, He would keep us hidden from you and never let you know the hand. He laugh as you sin in your pit. But it is a loving God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins, so you do not have to descend into that pit. An angel comes and proclaims the gospel and tells you, it tells you that the gospel is the good news and worship God. The world system is falling and if you stay in it, you will not live in this world system temporarily, but you will be in an eternal place separated from God. That is the God who right now is calling you and warning you. People say, oh, you shouldn't try to scare people into heaven. I'm not scaring anybody. I will try to tell the truth. But if you come into heaven and you enter into the gates of the kingdom shaking for fear of the fire, then praise God. I will not say I'm sorry for that. Here's the thing. John describes this as drinking the wine of the wrath of God mixed in its full strength. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus drank that cup. Jesus has already drank in that cup for you. He has borne the wrath of God on your behalf on Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the full brunt of God's wrath on your behalf. Now why would you refuse that? You know Babylon is falling. You know the gospel is out there saying, Bow to me and give me glory, and I will make you kings and priests in my kingdom. And I will let you sing the song of the redeemed, and you will stand before me in glory and in my presence. Here is John, very black and white, heaven or hell, 
you are one of the 144,000 of the church of God, or you are out of Babylon and your deeds. John does not mince words. John does not give us a, a gray area. It is black and white. It is heaven and hell. It is Christ and Antichrist. It is. It is salvation or it is condemnation. Will you place your trust in Christ? And then we see that the reason John wrote this. This is perseverance of the saints. The dragon is waging war. His agents persecute and deceive. The saints are imprisoned and killed. They are ostracized and scorned. And in verses 1 through 5, we glimpse the reward of those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In verses 6 through 11, we see the results of rejecting the Lamb. And now John is calling you and I to perseverance. Do you need help persevering and maintaining your faithfulness through Christ? Remember, the fall of Babylon is certain. And remember the victory of the redeemed. Remember the fate of those who refuse to repent and shake their fist at God. And remember the song of victory of the redeemed. Trusting in Jesus will bring the wrath of the beast. And trusting And while that may bring the wrath of the beast, it will bring the praise of God. And we, we end this section with this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is a beatitude. They will rest from their labors. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. You will notice that those who go down into the pit have no rest. But those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes will have rest from their labors. And then the Spirit says, and their deeds will follow. What that means is that all that you do in faithfulness to Christ will be remembered on the day of judgment. You will be standing before the Lamb of God and you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Your deeds will follow you. All of the righteous deeds that you have done in the name of Christ will follow you. And all of the sins that you have committed will have been forgotten because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And your righteous deeds will follow. And the only thing when you stand before the Lamb that will be recognized is the deed that you've done for Christ. That's it. Oh, you've loved my people. You've prayed for my persecuted saints. You gave a cup of cold water in my name. That's all I know. Because my son bore the penalty for all your sins. And I see them no more. They're righteous deeds. These are the blessed ones. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. They are the blessed ones because their deeds follow. I'll conclude with this. Jesus is the true ruler of heaven and earth. And Jesus redeems those who trust in him. And right now he is calling you and I to join in the chorus of the redeemed. Who sing the song of victory. The victory of the redeemed. The gospel is going forth. And now are you following the lamb? That's our question. There is no in between. There is no somewhat following the lamb. Kind of following the lamb. Are you following the lamb or not? There is heaven and hell, there is judgment and there is righteousness, there is vindication and there is guilt. The gospel has gone forth. Give God glory and worship Him and worship Him alone. Let's stand and let's pray.